Hey everyone, I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and a psychotherapist. And I'm Rue Powell, an admitted workaholic and self-care Luddite. And you are listening to Selfie, a weekly podcast about women learning to take better care of themselves. We think self-care is important, but it can simultaneously be elusive. We don't lack information about it, but we don't always quite get there. So this podcast is dedicated to exploring different aspects of self-care, from the silly to the serious. We're looking at health, relationships, beauty, periods, and maybe a touch of the random. We also want to look at the hurdles we face that keep us from caring for ourselves like we should. To submit questions to me or Rue, or to Claire, our beauty expert, or BJ, our resident therapist, join us in our private forum by searching Selfie Podcast Community on Facebook. Hey guys, welcome to Selfie. I'm here with Rue, and we are ready to do our self-care check-ins. Hey, Rue. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How has your self-care been? It has been good. I have gone back to therapy. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I bop, bop in and out of in my right. lifetime. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about something that I am really dealing with in my therapy right now, and that is anger, which I have to say is a little bit embarrassing to admit because I don't like the idea of anger. That feels very, especially, I don't know, as a 46-year-old divorced woman, it feels very cliche. It feels mm-hmm. very, I don't know, bitter. Not the things that I want to be, but one of the things that just keeps coming up is that I do. I have a lot of anger. And you and I have talked about this a bit, and I've talked about it with a lot of friends, but I just think a lot of women our age are dealing with a ton of anger because of gender roles, Mm. because we're in this weird sandwich generation where, sure, we may have partners or husbands or ex-husbands who say, yes, I'm all for gender equality, but both parties are working and women are still doing a lion's share of the work. Right. And one of the things that, you know, we talked about before, too, is this idea of weaponized incompetence, which I <sighs> and I'm, you know, uh, you know, of course, hashtag not all men. Right. Of course. But I think it's most men have just been socialized to be incompetent at care tasks and and we've been socialized to accept that, right? Like, and, oh, and even and even joke about it, right? And joke about it, right? Like, he's oh, that's your yeah, right, or that's or had, had when you were married, did anyone refer to your ex husband as like your fifth kid? You know that uh, kind of whole, they still do, yeah. <laughs> that kind of whole like, ah, oh, shucks, I don't know how to do this. Good thing I've got so and so at home to help me, as though it's supposed to be cute. And I love the phrase weaponized incompetence. And I think just to go back to being angry, I think anger comes out because of maybe anxiety. Like it's a, it's a, it's a symptom of anxiety. And why are we anxious? Because we have all of this stuff to do and think about and this mental load. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I will share just some practical examples of what weaponized incompetence looks like in my life. Right. So I reach out to my co-parent, Hey, there are six appointments that the kids need in the next couple months, you know, flu shots, dentist appointments, blah, 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 dermatology appointments. Here are the doctors. Here are the phone numbers. Can you pick two of them to do? So I'm not even asking for 50, 50. Right. Can you pick two? And again, I'm managing all of this. I'm providing the phone numbers. Can you just call and make two of the appointments? 
The response is, you know that I'm really bad at communicating what is said in these appointments, so I think that you should go because you're always frustrated that I don't tell you what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I... I... Now, yes. how is that not going to make me, and this is one of, I mean, a million things like this. Oh, I'm not good at putting things in the calendar. So can you just do that? Oh, I'm not good at blah, blah, blah. And it's like, how am I not going to be in a low simmering rage when I am right. forced to do everything Right. Because someone else isn't good at things. Well, the the idea of you're better at this than I am. Well, right. all right. But it's not rocket science. And, right. you know, this is something that you can do. Um, if you're not good at getting information from the doctor, maybe you take notes. Actually, I will say this. Um, one thing that my partner does when uh, our kids have a doctor appointment is he will ask the doctor, if especially if I'm working or in an appointment that we feel like is really important, he'll ask the doctor for permission to record a voice yes. memo. And I feel like that's a really good I'm like give me the give me the high level takeaways and if there's something, you know, then I can I can listen to it I suppose. Yeah. Um, I usually don't, but it's nice to have just in yeah. case. It's like wait, but what did they say about this? Right. So, uh yeah, but I see this I see this in um, you know, I think I think most, if not all women who are listening to this can relate in some way, even if you just saw it growing up. Um, the idea that what I hate is that it's supposed to be this cute thing too, like, oh, dad put on the clothes backwards, you know, whoa. Uh-huh. Look at and, my ki- look at my daughter's hair when daddy dressed her for the day, LOL. Right. But then it becomes things that affect my day to day. Like there are times where for example, let's say um, when your kids were smaller, would you prefer to have your spouse watch them for a couple hours or a babysitter? Because with a babysitter, you know they're going to do things to uh-huh. your – because they have to, because you're paying them. So they're going right. to do things the right way. Um, and I don't know. Does that make us super type A? Does that make us controlling? Or are we just tired of like, – because when it, when it comes to weaponized incompetence, it's like we have to put up with mediocrity or we right. have to put put that's up with right. something that's less than our standard just because we're sharing the load with someone else. And I don't think it has to be the case. No, I don't either. And I think that that is where so many of us feel so much anger because we've also been socialized. Do not be a nag. Being a nag is the very worst thing you could possibly be. You know, that's shrill. That's, you know, you're going to get left. A nagging wife is, you know, the very worst thing in the world. And, I mean, there's a Bible verse about it. <laughs> yeah. And so the result is that any kind of feedback, any kind of, you know, hey, you know, you were supposed to make dinner for the kids while I was out and I came home and they hadn't eaten. Oh, you just, I can never. Oh, and that's another thing, another aspect of weaponized incompetence. This phrase, I can never do it. I can never do anything right. It's never good enough for you. Right. Mm-hmm. When in fact, no, there's just like a baseline level of care that isn't good enough for me. It's good enough for like functioning. Right. Right. Um, Um, like what would, like how would, I don't know. I would love to maybe talk to a, not even a single dad, like an only dad, you know what I mean? Who does not have a spouse and hear their perspectives because one, I also think it really, 
Like, it really undermines men's intelligence for us to kind of just give into this. And it almost feels like we've, like, they've played the world's biggest joke on us and we've all fallen for it. Um, Because we know, you and I know lots of men that are smart and Mm -hmm. we, you know, from what we can see, they're, they're um, good caretakers. And, you know, are they also sharing the mental load? Well, certainly they should be able to. We know them to be smart people. Um, Are they, are they capable of, you know, um, spending a week alone with the kids well certainly they should be able to because we know them to be smart people Mm -hmm. so it's like this idea that you know they can't do what we can do to our expectation when it comes to caretaking i think is i get mad about that too (laughs) i know i know so anyway i am working through that uh, but i just wanted to talk about it because i think it's a dynamic that a lot of women are dealing with and i think a lot of us are dealing with anger. And a part of it is just that we are overwhelmed because we are doing all of the thinking, all of the planning, all of the tasks. Um, or we have occasional help from a partner that we have to manage and supervise. Right. And that sucks. Anyway, I, I feel, I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating the men in all of our lives, yeah, right? no. I have a completely capable partner right now, but he is not the parent of my children. Right. Right. So. Or there, you know, um, having like – having – there should be a campaign for men about like not treating your partner yeah. as, go- as Google. Like when does school get yeah. out? Yeah. The calendar. You know? Totally. And send me the address. Google oh. it. Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, this is a situation that should be righted by men. And I wish more men were talking about it and holding each other accountable. You know, it's just like white people need to solve white privilege and (laughs) systemic racism. Men need to solve this. Come on, guys. Right. Anyway, how about you? How's your self-care going? Well, um, I have a standing with my therapist now, Mm -hmm. a standing date, which I don't always go to. Sometimes I cancel the day before because other stuff happens. And she talked about how finding something, one small thing each day that grounds me, that, like, makes me, I don't know, be present, will be a good practice for me. Because no matter how chaotic a day gets or whether I'm traveling or I'm whatever, if I can do something and kind of check in with my body, it'll be be a good thing and I'll feel the benefits of it. Even if it's, in her words, like, lying in savasana for five minutes. Mm -hmm. That's that's good for you. So I have been doing – a headstand every day. And I like it. I enjoy doing a headstand. It, you know, you kind of engage all the muscles in your body. Sometimes if I'm not feeling great or if I'm not focused, then I fall over. So in order to <laughs> in order to do it right, I have to really focus and kind of yeah. be connected with my body. And so I started doing handstands but up against like a door uh, a, a doorway essentially. Um, but the idea is kind of I mean, I don't know the actual science behind this, but there are all these articles that talk about why being upside down or doing a headstand or a handstand is so good for you. For me, it's because I have to focus on what's happening. Otherwise, I, I'll bite it really badly. You know, like I don't want to smash my face against the ground. Um, and it's kind of a nice reminder that my body can still do these things, you know? Yeah, totally. And I love that, like, it's a it's a body thing that gets your mind in the right place. I love that. Right. Yes, because there are times where, you know, I don't know, when you're stewing in your own stuff, like you're just stewing, you're just Mm -hmm. stewing or you're just fretting. And 
you don't solve it by fretting more. So the, you have to do right. something something else. And I think that's why some of us like, oh, I need to go for a walk to blow off steam mm-hmm. or I need to do – or some people need to go have a cigarette break or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to – okay, well, now I'm going to focus and do a handstand and focus. The other day I was trying to do a headstand and I had been fretting. I had had like a rough day. And so I just kept eating it. I kept falling over. And I realized I wasn't, my my brain wasn't into it. And so I, I realized I really had to check in. Otherwise I was just going to keep falling. Mm-hmm. And so got up in the air, stayed there for a few minutes. And then I felt accomplished too, because it was like, look at me. I focused. It's like, it's like getting through a meditation when you've actually meditated, you know? I love that. Um, what about two thumbs up? Okay. I, um, (laughs) I take different medications for various Mm -hmm. things like many of us do. And I have in the past, because I'm afraid that I'm like not taking it at the right time. If I'm running out the door, I'll just do a, a sweep with my arm of all the bottles like into my bag. Mm-hmm. And then I know that's not the best. Or like if I leave something somewhere, then I'm frantic. But I didn't want a very obvious pillowcase. Mm-hmm. Not because there's a stigma around medication, but because I don't need people in my business, right? Totally. Like, so I so I, um, I really like these pill boxes. I've had them for a while, and then I saw that they – got popular and um i really like it it's called it's a brand called port and polish and it's a pillbox and it looks very discreet and it's pretty it oh, looks nice. really cute they're just really minimalist rectangles yes until you, and you open just, it and you pop it open and then it has like the sunday through sunday and it comes with a mirror mm-hmm. and i I am buying another one because what I want to do is have an emergency set of meds at the office in case I forgot to take them at yeah, home. Very smart. And so, so I, I like this because it kind of keeps me. One thing that I am, I am, I will get. One thing that I will struggle with sometimes is is being consistent, and I know it's so important, especially it's just so important to be consistent. So uh-huh. these these cute little boxes have helped me. So uh-huh. I really, I really like those. Those are really um, cute. I know you had like a timer one that you were using. Are you still well, using that? That's for home and that's and that's really for my kid. Right. And yes, we are absolutely. I mean, I, I can't say enough about those timer caps. They still are the thing that keeps things on the rails because yeah. I have a kid who needs to take a medication every single day and that kid is also very forgetful and not a great historian about whether they took it or not. And so the timer cap can allow me to go in and be like, oh, you didn't take it. You have to take it. Right. Because if it, you know, if the timer cap shows 25 hours since they last took their med, I know that they didn't take it that morning. So it's very helpful. I, I'm, there are times where I go, wait, did I take these today? Um, yes. So I and, like... and that's good for that as well. My boyfriend <laughs> uses it for that reason because he also takes meds and he will be like, did I take it? I think I took it. No, I don't remember. Honestly, that's why the days of the week help me. I pop it open. I'm like, oh, I did take Wednesdays or whatever. Uh Um, Totally. And and the other thing is uh, I was talking to my therapist about time to connect with my kids. And, you know, like yours, mine are into a lot of different activities. So whether they're each involved in a sport and all of those sports happen at different times, whether there's a game or a meet or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, that having dinner together as a family is almost impossible. I know. So I have been working on, I feel like if I make it whimsical, then I'm more apt to do it. Mm -hmm. I've been waking up early and I've been trying to find cute 
dishes to make a breakfast our special meal of the day. Mm. Because at least we we all start at the same place, right? We're, we're all still at home at five in the morning, right? And then yeah. then that's, then everyone everything gets hectic and someone needs to work out or someone needs to shower and then someone's off to school at one time and someone's off to work. So um, I found this really cute picture from Anthropology and it has like little rainbows on it. And I just think it's, I've been putting together just, you know, fun mugs and cutlery and a tablecloth and just a way to start the day off with like a, like a nice meal. And even if it's just cereal, sitting with my kids and having coffee while they eat cereal and then they rush off to school has been really nice. So I am trying to make a concerted effort with, um, with breakfast, if, especially if we can't do dinner. Yeah, I love that. I am. I completely fail at breakfast. Um, never have. Don't think I've ever made a sit down breakfast for my children on a free school day. Well, it's not even like a sit down breakfast. It's yeah, I yeah, just yeah. need. I just need you to sit down and eat breakfast yes, with yes. with us. Um, I and mean, you guys are maybe you're. Are you guys doing those smoothies at all? No. I mean, I, I want to start doing that right now. My kids, most of my kids grab an apple for breakfast. Oh no. Which is not the best. Um, I, despite the fact that I have a multitude of options for them, they just don't take them. Um, and I don't make it for them. So it's like, okay, here's oatmeal and here's gluten-free waffles and here's, you know, all these options. And then they grab an apple or eat no breakfast. So mm. I don't know. I've kind of given up on that, but I am going to try to get them to do morning smoothies out of the cups. We'll see how that goes. I will say, not that I want to put more work on anyone's plate, but it's easy enough that your kids could do it. Overnight oats have been a hit. Dude, yes. And in fact, I think I might try using those cups for those as well. Yeah, because you just, Pop I mean, really, fridge. you're just mixing the, the ingredients yes. and popping them in the fridge. And sometimes I'll just do a bunch in advance. Yeah. So in the morning, they just grab one and go. Um and then I feel like they're at least getting some nutrition because for some of my kids, they won't eat until like a lot later and then they've got a bunch of sports after. So they have to kind of jam as much food as they can in mm-hmm. at like a later. So I, I mean, for me, I'm an adult and I still graze throughout the day. Maybe that's not the best yeah. thing, but I, so I try to send them off with a decent meal. And if they're rushing out the door and, you know, trying to grab an apple, you know, then I say, well, what about here's at least take this with you. Here's a yogurt. Here's overnight oats. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe they'll like that. Yeah. Because then they don't even have to blend it. Totally. Yeah. I'm going to try that. That's a good idea. What are your two thumbs up? Okay. Mine are related and they're a little dorky because here yes. this is like talking about that vacuums, but um <laughs> They are related to laundry. So I have been trying to go greener with, you know, everything in the house. We're now using bar shampoo. We're, you know, using bar soap, trying to get away from plastic, that kind of thing. So I I think I had actually asked about this in the selfie group, but I wanted to shift my laundry detergent away from, you know, liquid laundry detergent in plastic packaging. Mm-hmm. And someone turning turned me on to these detergent sheets, which right. are just... exactly like they sound they're kind of like a dryer sheet but they're a little spongier to the touch and you just throw it into the wash and that's your soap so I'm obsessed they work really well I was very skeptical because I have some stinky kids who play a lot of sports right they work really well so I'm fully converted I have them on Amazon subscribe and save we're now a laundry sheet 
family. But I wanted a way to be able to organize the laundry sheets and the dryer sheets in our <laughs> like laundry closet. So I found on Amazon these stackable drawers. Um, and I think that they're really made more for cosmetics. Mm-hmm. But the ones that I found perfectly fit dryer sheets and these laundry sheets. So if anyone is interested in, in a perfect fit, I did the work. I found the size and I will link them up in the show notes. Um, oh. but they are just these perfect little drawers and they're see-through and I put a label on each one, laundry sheets, dryer sheets, and you open the drawer and you pull one out of the top and it's beautiful. You know, at first blush, I thought they were a lot larger than they are, but you can see like there's a nail polish in them. So they're, so they're nice. So it's really contained. It's not like it's yes. a big drawer full of stuff. No. And so, and you can fit, you know, like two packages of the laundry sheets into the drawer. So if, you know, if you have extras, you can kind of pile them in there. Um, oh, I, like I just this. feel like they're keeping us more contained and they look nice. You know, I, I like that, like taking these out of their package thing. Um, but yeah, so and that it's is, better for the environment. And it is. It is. Yeah. That's my exciting laundry news. Over okay, here. I will. I think I can try. I can try. I will make an attempt to convert. I will give these a shot because these look good. Hey guys, well, I am excited to be talking today with Rafia Zakaria. She is the author of a new book called Against White Feminism. Um, I just had the chance and pleasure to read this book, and I hope you guys will listen to this conversation because I think it's incredibly important for um, particularly white women who consider themselves feminists to grapple with what she's talking about in the book. So Rafia, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciated the book so much. I really loved that it was, you know, um, it was really a book um, that was making some good criticisms of white feminism, but you did such a great job of talking both about the concepts and then giving really concrete examples. So I wanted to just jump right in with um, a question of what is the problem with colorblind feminism. So I think a lot of women who are feminists think, you know, this is a colorblind movement. This is for women. So, you know, we're not going to focus on race because it's for everybody. What's the problem with coming to feminism from that kind of lens? Um, Yeah, that's an excellent question. And the problem with it is, um, is quite simple is that we've, the feminist movement as it's been constructed right now um, is a movement that relies on the idea of solidarity equaling the erasure of race. Mm -hmm. So that, um, you know, as you said, um, anytime you bring up the topic of race that's considered uh, sowing dissension or make being divisive. Um, And what I wanted to show in this book is that the consequence of that almost deliberately cultivated um, silence on race mm-hmm. uh, has meant that race has become the feminist movement's biggest handicap. Mm-hmm. And um, to the point where, you know, the effort to avoid discussions of race have become absurd, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so that was the, the, the central issue that worried me. Um, I think that there is definitely a Latin worry among white women and white feminists 
that if you start talking about race or the intersection of race and class, race and gender intersectionality, um, you are that they're going to essentially be forced out of feminism. Mm -hmm. That's what I've heard. But mm -hmm. you know, my book is not a call to do that, even mm -hmm. to the extent that um, you know, by white feminist, the very first page of the book explains how by white feminist, I don't mean someone who's white and a feminist. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, very particularly white women who are uninterested or unwilling to um, look at the role that racial privilege has, has played in, um, in the feminist movement. And, um, and, and, and ensuring their dominance in mm -hmm. the feminist movement um, or, or in general. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's a very particular definition of white feminism that I'm mm -hmm. deploying here. Um, you know, it's not a racially descriptive term. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I talk about how there can be brown and black white feminists because, mm -hmm. um, you know, the system that we have doesn't just um, you know, valorize and center white women, it also rewards, um, you know, minority or women of color who kind of pander to that system yes. and don't challenge it. Um, so I think that's very important to remember. You talked about something that I thought w that really um, was convicting for me, um, this difference between rebellion and versus resistance and how white feminism recognizes rebellion over resistance. Talk, talk to me about or, or resilience. Talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, the point, um, there are certain adjectives, right, that feminism as white and Western feminism has embraced. And it's, it's they've embraced them to the point that those are the qualities that are considered feminist, right? So mm -hmm. rebellion would be number one, I would mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem that I saw with that is that if you're only looking for rebellion uh, all around the world, um, you're not going to find necessarily, you know, black, brown, Muslim, whatever feminists that fit your narrow definition of what rebellion is. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I was saying that is uh, uh, pointing that is because I want readers and feminists to become sensitive to how uh, certain paradigms are used to evaluate women all around the world. Mm -hmm. But since the paradigms have come out of, you know, white racial privilege, um, the problem has been that, um, that, that they only sort of reward and elevate white women. Yeah. So, you know, yes. for instance, like if you're never looking for resilience, and, and this comes like from a very kind of uh, poignant place in my heart because, mm -hmm. um, I remember talking about this to my mother and uh, she was someone who had resisted so many things. She, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, we li obviously lived in Karachi in Pakistan. Um, she'd never really worked outside the home, but, you know, she really uh, fought tradition mm -hmm. 
and resisted sort of, comp- you know, giving up her identity and who she was mm-hmm. uh, to sort of this, uh, to the patriarchal system. And she learned how to drive and would drive me to like a very, um, you know, very crowded and aggressive uh, highway to take me to school where I got my education. And she would say, oh, well, you know, that's what they consider feminism. So I've not done any of those things, you know. Mm-hmm. I haven't c- climbed a corporate ladder mm-hmm. or fought against men. And and that's the story of millions and millions of women mm-hmm. around the world. Yes. Uh, who... You, who just feel that they're, you know, that they will not be considered valuable mm-hmm. within the feminist movement, yeah. their perspectives and their choices. And so, so that's what this was. I wanted to show that we need a, a more diverse lexicon, even in terms of the qualities that we, mm-hmm. that we call feminist qualities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, another, um, quote from the book that I really appreciated was you talked about the division of women who have a voice versus the women who have experience, or you also talked about the women who write about feminism versus the women who live without, you know, the benefits of feminism and how the voices that tend to rise to the top are the people who are sitting in privilege, not necessarily experiencing the actual oppression um, of you know, a lack of feminism. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I both worked in a shelter and had lived in a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the part that bothered me was that that I could never really talk about that mm-hmm. in a professional setting mm-hmm. unless I was willing to inhabit this role that brown and black or Asian women of color are put in mm-hmm. where they tell the stories of their trauma. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost like there's this, this ridiculous uh, division of labor where I'm supposed to tell my story of trauma, mm-hmm. but it's white women who are going to make the policies mm-hmm. and, you know, be considered experts in feminism. And, you know, you, you see that, I mean, most recently, it was visible in uh, what happened in Texas, right? Because uh, there's an abortion ban in place, but because the ban itself doesn't really have any kind of racial component, um, even though, you know, brown and black women are definitely going to be more affected by Mm -hmm. it than white women, uh, you know, the women you saw on TV or writing about it were all white women who are very removed from the conditions mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, from like, they're, they're not Texan, they're not, I mean, basically, they don't have any direct experience. And, and that points out sort of how we create this, this hierarchy. And it often is intimidating, almost mm-hmm. to women who have actually experienced trauma, because because it's it's this kind of gatekeeping mechanism that exists within sort of the upper echelon of white feminism, mm-hmm. where nobody even considers, I wanted people to start questioning whether women who have never really experienced anything directly um, are just, you know, uncritically accepted as experts on feminism. 
Mm-hmm. I re- I want to dislodge that mm-hmm. paradigm so much so that and and this is true I mean for white women too there are plenty of white women in the shelter that I was at and and mm-hmm. and they um you know they would feel the same way they would say what what do I have to add you yeah. know yeah like my life it, it's so it's so sad um you know when you encounter someone who has gone through indescribable trauma has made their way out mm-hmm. is being a single mom to four kids and then they say what do i have to add within feminist discussions right it's because you know um there's like a sort of elite cabal that yeah. is always the loudest and yeah um you know and so these experiences of other women are left um, essentially by the wayside. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I loved how you talked about, you know, one of the problems of white feminism being that we're using the same structures of white privilege at, in terms of who we reward, who, you know, what standards we put in place to who we listen to, whether that be access, education, wealth, there's these sort of markers that, this entire system has put in place to say this is who we value, which makes, you know, which makes the voices the most privileged in the room as opposed to the most experienced. Precisely. And the issue is, is that this does not, I mean, you know, the paradigm that we have within the United States, where, for instance, in the 80s, um, Catherine Kinnan and Andrea Dworkin were, you know, anti-porn feminists, and they lobbied hard for the Violence Against Women Act, which whose entire purpose was to quote unquote protect women. Now, when this, you know, when when this act was about to pass, um, Black and Latina women complained, and they said, you know, this is going to lead to our men being arrested and this is going to you know uh contribute to mass incarceration nobody listened to them at all mm-hmm. um and it, and that is exactly what happened you know um the the black black men were arrested at five times greater mm-hmm. rate than white men and you know, a year or two after the law was passed, black women were actually experiencing higher rates of violence than before the passage of the act. Mm. Um, So, you know, that's another example because you look at the the mechanism there, right? You've got these white women at the top who really want to pass this law and they they want the state to protect them, Mm -hmm. essentially. Right, but of course, that experience of that uh, by Black and Brown women, even in you know in the United States, is uh, is you know is to say, okay, well, you're we're not particularly interested in protecting you, mm-hmm. and we're not going to serve as a check on state power. Mm-hmm. Now, the same paradigm is repeated abroad, where you have. Uh, white feminists who are installed in, you know, large global NGOs, uh, the UN, all of mm-hmm. these large transnational bodies that decide how hundreds of millions of development dollars will be mm-hmm. spent. Um, you know, the example I give in the book is a, is of clean stoves for India. Yeah. 
um, you know, it's it's a multi, I mean, it's, it's many hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. were spent on this program that was meant to deliver rural women in India from their, you know, smoky wooden stoves. So what they did is they went around, gave these women these uh, stoves and, um, you know, and then basically um, were like, okay, this this clean stove means that these women will no longer have to, um, they're, they're no longer going to have to go to collect wood. There's going to be less smoke. There's going to be less environmental impact from the fact that they won't be using firewood. Um, and, and then because they'll have all this free time that's opened up, they can go and uh, get a job outside the home and, um, and, and then, uh, you know, become wage earners and be more, um, have more decision-making power within their, uh, within the, within the family unit. And the insanity of all this is that nobody seems to have asked rural Indian women. Right. Whether if this is going to improve the their lives or not, yeah, right. And so, when they were given the stoves, they took them, but they kept cooking on their wooden stove, right? That or their clay stove that they wood burning stove mm-hmm. that they could um, make themselves and fix themselves, right. and that cook they were used to using precisely, and, yeah. Um, and um, you know and when they were asked about this finally uh they said look um i like going out um i like going out to collect wood with the women of the village Mm -hmm. it's my social time Mm -hmm. we get to exchange news we get to hang out with each other um i don't want to give that up yeah you know and it was found that you know the environmental impact of the little bits of firewood that they were collecting were negligible compared to like the logging that was going on in those right. forests. So this idea that somehow it was their fault that um, there was deforestation going on is is also ridiculous. But ultimately, it's like we don't want to work outside the home, you know. Yeah. Um, and the reason we don't want to work outside the home is that. Uh, the only jobs that are available to us over here are, you know, things like working in construction sites, breaking rocks. Yeah. And we don't want to do that. Right. We definitely don't want to do that. And so I think that that uh, example really shows so many assumptions that are operative there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, women in the West, white women, you know, especially are very much aligned with this kind of um, individualistic, um, ambitious, and, you know, I'll lean in as hard as I can to get higher and higher. Uh, That's very much like their attitude. So obviously, they assume that, okay, rural women in India want the same things that we do. Right. So, (laughs) <laughs> you know, so they want, um, uh, you know, and that and that they value the same things. Yeah. So it it says so much, right? Because you have um, these women who like the the women who make the programs who just cannot conceptualize why someone would choose to be a little poorer 
uh, but more enriched in terms of right. their sisterhood right. than, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's, and, and that's where we are at today with mm -hmm. feminism, is yeah. that because it has cultivated this individualistic, careerist kind of idea of success, um, white women especially are denied an experience of sisterhood, of yeah. meaningful sisterhood. Yes, I completely agree. And I, I loved how you talked about this sort of white um, savior complex and how you know, white feminism tends to oversimplify the problems of black and brown women and then try to find these, these really like oversimplified solutions that aren't taking into account differing values. Yeah, yeah precisely. Uh, you know, no one in the United States would ever say, uh, okay, well, well, you know, Muncie, Indiana is like a, a a town that's experiencing a downturn. But you know what? We're just gonna make provide chickens to every all the women in Muncie so that they can, um, you know, then they the chicken will lay an egg and then they can sell the eggs and there'll be more eggs and you know before you know it they'll have like a poultry business. No yeah. one's ever gonna say that, right? right? And the reason they won't say that is because. Um, everyone understands that uh, there are complex problems there. But when it comes to women, I mean, this chicken th example that I'm giving is a real yeah. example, right? Yes. Bill Gates, the yeah. Gates Foundation, you know, came up with this idea that if you give chickens to women in Africa, uh, then suddenly they'll have this poultry business and that'll be, you know, uh, the yeah. end of poverty. Problem solved. Precisely. Yeah. And obviously, it's, it's it's ludicrous, right? Yeah. Uh, and the program didn't work, and it was abandoned. Um, but the the larger issue is 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 that you know we we absolutely cannot have this kind of reductionist framework yeah. uh, to apply to each other. You know, um, yeah. like. Uh, I mean, you know, for instance, uh, one a feminist that I spoke to in uh, Pakistan, you know, women that uh, lived in a small city, but, um, you know, and they said, we're all educated. The education is not a problem. We just don't have any jobs. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so, yeah, I mean, one more point that I would like to make is also that, you know, it's a myth that the West, white Western world, or the white uh, feminist industrial complex is selfless and benevolent. Yeah. That is a myth that is so deliberately cultivated, right? Yeah. Is that they were just giving out these stoves out of the goodness of their heart. Right. Or, um, you know, and, and that's repeated in many, many contexts. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the result is, is that uh, nobody ever looks at the cost of those quote unquote good intentions. Right. And there are real costs, Absolutely. Uh, not only of money wasted, uh, but also like a, a failure to recognize that, um, you know, when, when aid giving agencies, et cetera, et cetera, give something. Uh, they foment uh, and and sort of strengthen the yeah. white industrial feminist complex, yes. right? Because then it's like the white woman, she's so noble and benevolent. Yeah. And then 
you know, she's going to go and help this poor woman in India who doesn't even seem to know how to take care of her own children. And then it just Uh, perpetuates the hierarchy. Yeah, yep. absolutely. This keeps perpetuating the hierarchy. So it's not yeah. that aid is bad. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that, like, helping people in other countries is right. bad. It's I'm the just, helping without input, without consideration, without a cultural lens. Right. Or, you know, or, or sort of uh, not taking note of the power difference. Yeah. So, yes. you know. Yes. Um, Recently, uh, the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, and um, you know, the first, of course, it was uh, just white women talking because until like you know, brown women ra- raised like an uproar that yeah. oh, like can you please talk to actual yes. Afghan women about yes. this as opposed to you? So eventually, that happened. But even in that conversation, you know, the women that were brought on are women who, you know, for instance, I was on Democracy Now! with this uh, one Afghan woman. And, you know, she she took USAID, USAID money for her NGO for decades. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, th- that's not a bad thing. But it also right. means that, you know, when she's talking about the United States and imperialism, she... Mm-hmm you know, has signed on to that right. project of right. neo-imperial, here right. is the feminism. Right. Uh, I brought it to you from right. New Jersey. And yeah. you know, here you apply it in Kandahar. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I appreciated your book so much. We're just touching the surface of what your book talks about. I hope everyone will go out and buy it. Where can people find you online? Um, I'm Rafia Zakaria Feminist on Instagram and just Rafia Zakaria on Twitter. And the book is available anywhere you can buy a book. And I'll have all of that linked up as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Always been my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thank you for joining us. Continue the self-care conversation with us on Instagram at at selfiepodcast and in the Selfie Podcast community group on Facebook. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at selfiepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so you can catch up with us next week. Take care. Take care.